Well, if you were here last week, you know that I started a new consecutive expository series in the book of Micah. Micah is a book of dire warnings, threatened judgments, but it also is a book of daring hope and God's remembering his covenant faithfulness to even a disobedient people. And ultimately, in the book of Micah, we see the ultimate promise of the Redeemer that God would send, even the one that would be born in Bethlehem in Micah 5.2, that prophecy that's part of our Christmas uh, uh, nine lessons and carols. It's one of the texts that we read uh, and tells us of that. So there's much wonderful good stuff, good news and bad news. But we have to get the bad news first before the good news. And we see that unfolding in Micah. We started last week and I kind of laid out some of the groundwork with using just the first chapter, talking about who Micah was and where he came from where he uh, ministered to both in the northern and southern kingdoms. And today, we're going to pick up our scripture reading, having introduced that with chapter verse 1. By the way, verse 1, just so that you re- I will read it to you once more. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Now today, our scripture reading, we pick up from there, beginning at verse 2 through verse 16 of Micah chapter 1. And again, I remind you, this is not the word of men, this is the word of the living God. Hear it with careful attention and appreciation. Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations." All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. 
for her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all in Bethlehor. Roll yourself in dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir. In nakedness and shame, the inhabitants of Zanon do not come out. The lamentation of Bethazel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Marath wait anxiously for good because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Beth Morasheth Gath, the house of Exib, and shall be deceit shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marisha. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. This is the word of the Lord. Let us hear it and let us give thanks and hear God's word. Father, we ask you to once again help us understand your word. You have spoken it to us. The word long ago prophesied. Help us to understand its application for us and what kind of God you really are. May you be glorified and exalted now and forever. And we pray in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. The first series of prophecies, there's actually in the, in the book of Micah, there you, you could call it three cycles or three sections, major sections. This is the beginning, verses 2 through 16 that we read. This is the beginning of that first set of prophecies, and it particularly speaks about God's coming judgment to both Samaria in the northern kingdom. Remember at this point in time in Israel's history, the kingdom had been divided. There was the northern kingdom, and its capital was in Samaria. And then there was the southern kingdom, and its capital was Judah. And two oracles or judgments two warnings of judgment to come. One was against Samaria in that reading that I just read to you. That's verses 2 through 7 that are concerning the coming judgment on Samaria. And then in verses 8 through 16 is the warning of another judgment to come, 
not first, but after the judgment on Samaria. So first of all, the prophet says Samaria will be judged. And then he alludes to the coming judgment on Judah, the southern kingdom. In verse 8, well, actually, even though those are different, these two things are joined together by a common denominator. You know what that is? That common denominator is they both have been unfaithful to Yahweh, the God of Israel. They both have broken covenant, and God has dealings with them. He is coming to bring, coming down literally from his place in glory to bring judgment upon his disobedient and rebellious people, both in the north and in the south. But the way those will unfold, there are differences. But it starts, and that is the thing, though it's divided chronologically, we see the fall of the former pointing to the subsequent fall of the latter. The northern kingdom is going to fall and come under judgment first. But that also pretends a coming judgment on Jerusalem and the southern kingdom as well. Now, here's our outline for today. By the way, I know that a lot of that language, and hopefully I'm going to be able to kind of help, help us understand some of that language. There was a lot of word pictures, a lot of metaphor, a lot of pictures of things that are, are metaphorical. They're not they're not what it's saying, it's alluding to something else. And hopefully we'll be able to, to grasp that a little bit better as we go forward. But here's the outline for today. Judgment foretold, judgment lamented, and then finally, judgment suspended for a time. Judgment suspended for a time. So let's look at the judgment that is foretold. Micah delivered this oracle against Samaria and Jerusalem before the year 722 B.C. You say, well, how do we know that? <laughs> because in 722 B.C., it wasn't just warning of impending judgment. Samaria, the northern kingdom, was flattened, demolished, turned into a heap of rubble. You heard the language when God came and literally destroyed and decimated that. Now, did he use an instrument? Yes. That instrument was the Assyrian kings, these series of mighty kings that had been coming against both the northern and the southern kingdom in those days. But this time, it wasn't just a raid or a, a requirement of booty or of taxes it was an outright destruction. Complete and utter destruction for the northern kingdom. And so in that year, after, we don't know how long before that, but we know in 722, Micah's prophecy was fulfilled. The Lord brought his covenant lawsuit against the northern kingdom. They had broken covenant with him and he brought as it were, a judgment, a lawsuit, and its consequent response. Micah sees 
behind these Assyrian troops. They are the immediate instrument that brings the judgment upon his people in the north for all of their sins and vileness. But he sees, Micah sees them as the Lord's army, as troops under the hand of God Almighty coming to do his bidding. They bring a heavenly judgment down upon Israel. So God is coming down. When God comes down, you see this title. That's what's happening here. God is coming and bringing judgment upon the northern kingdom first. In his wrath, God treads down the mountains and they melt like hot wax before the Lord of all the earth. All this is just rich metaphor of saying God sent his hammer and they smashed and crushed the northern kingdom and scattered them to the four winds. Now this visitation from God on high is because, why? It was because of the northern kingdom's transgressions, their gross and egregious sins. And also, they were not the only ones. They may have been deeper in, but so was the house of Israel. That is there referring to the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom. The word therefore shows that the sentence handed down by God himself fits the accusation. They have earned, they have piled and been piling this up and warning after warning, but now the judgment has come on the northern kingdom. He will make Samaria a heap of rubble. He will pour her magnificent stones. Literally, they, from the great bulwark there, the, the um, uh, capital of Samaria was on an Acropolis. They literally tumbled down those stones and brought them down, almost like what was done in the days of Josephus in the uh, destruction of Jerusalem. Stone by stone, they left nothing unscathed. And interestingly, her idols, which Jerusalem and Samaria, both had become idolatrous in so many ways, but those idols were things that they trusted in. They were counting on them to protect them because they saw themselves as what? The holy people of God. Can't touch us. We're, we're God's people. Oh, all, that, all those prophets saying bad things are going to happen. Oh, they, they're, they always do that. Ahab, remember, said, you know, Elijah, you troubler of Israel, every time you come around, you always talk about judgment and about what God's going to do. Yeah, we're God's people. We don't have to worry. You see, her idols in which she trusted was in fact going to be one of the things that brought her destruction. Hosea, interesting passage, says this in Hosea 8. They made kings but not through me. God's saying, I'm the real king, but they, they made their own. They set up their own. They set up princes. You know, we're in charge. We're in control. 
but I knew them not. With their silver and their gold, they made idols for their own destruction. They thought they were making themselves rich. They thought they were strengthening their position. When in reality, they were making idols fit for their own destruction. Interesting, too, in that there's an allusion to the, to the prostitutes, the gold and the silver. And ultimately, what Micah is saying to them is, oh, uh, when you go into captivity, when you get hauled off into another country as a slave, uh, you, you, you will find those things that you used and your prostitutes, your temple prostitutes, and as you hoard against the God of Israel, you're going to find them using those prostitutes and their gold and silver in a foreign and strange country. It's going to be another sign of your judgment. You had them. You thought they were yours. You're going to have to watch what happens. You see, the word, I say, uh, excuse me, the blindness of unbelievers. This is where we, what we need to, to really grasp here. So all this happened a long time ago in a place far, far away from us. And today, people think, well, that's, yeah, that was just an interesting story. You know, probably never really happened. But if it is, it has nothing to do with us. Oh, yes, it does, my friend. It has a lot to do with us. The blind eyes of unbelievers, they saw the immediate cause of Samaria's fall. But the march of those crack troops under the kings of Assyria, Micah saw them as the juggernaut of the invincible God of the universe who has come in judgment. He saw it as the invincible march of God. Yes, it was a pagan kingdom. God can use crooked sticks. He can take something bad and do his purposes with it. And he certainly was doing that. But Micah saw this was God, really, that was behind all of this, bringing this to pass because of their sin and impenitence. You see, it's kind of like if you ever have heard the poem by Julia Ward Howe. Do you know that poem? It's called the Battle Hymn of the Republic. One line goes like this. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible quick sword. His truth is marching on. That's what was happening in Samaria. God was marching, using instruments. Yes, the Assyrians, bad people, vile, bloodthirsty people. But God was bringing about a proper and warranted judgment using them as an instrument. Listen to Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke. Uh, has written a lot of, uh, uh, one of the best known uh, scholars, Old Testament. He speaks about the nature of God's judgment that so many in our time don't want to think about. 
They don't want to believe it will ever happen. They think somehow God is indifferent. If there is a God, he's just indifferent to things. No. Listen, listen to what Walkie says. Unbelieving secular humans see no connection between their immoral behavior and the cycles of depression, increasing crime, politicians instead of statesmen to guide them, ceaseless war, and venereal diseases, and many more. They, if they would see God ruling earth's affairs and tremble before him, they would have nothing to fear. Well, what's the implication? They don't tremble before him. They arrogantly goes on and say, ah, it hadn't happened, never going to happen. No, not here, not, ah, that's old, old hat. That's old stories, wives, wives' tales. Let's look at now, judgment, lamented. Judgment is coming. But it's not just coming on Samaria. It's also coming on the southern kingdom, Judah. They considered themselves far better than Samaria. But they too were idolatrous and were wicked in most of their kings and most of their people. The use of the phrase, because of this, there's a causal statement. Because of this, it links the judgment of Samaria with that of Judah. And it says, just like God cleaned their clock, you're next, Judah. You're next. Micah knows, because both have sinned, both must be punished. If there is a God, and he is a just God, which is what the Bible says that he is, then sin must be punished. It can't be just, oh, oh no, don't worry about it, no big deal. Just run along, try to do better next time. It's not a holy, just God. Can't let sin go by. And Micah introduces his judgment oracle against Judah by sorrowfully dramatizing the exile, the weeping, the wailing, going barefoot and literally being drugged or chained naked into a foreign exile and judgment under another kingdom Micah is using that language metaphorically to say that's the reality of what's coming. Micah predicts the fall of Judah's towns by a word play. He uses a play on words, particularly names of the various cities in the southwestern region where Micah was from, by the way. Where he was from, Morsheth. There's a bunch of other towns around there. Lachish, you heard various ones. Every one of those, Micah is using kind of their name as a play on words. You see, he's using that, that word play on their names 
which becomes an omen of their destruction. He's saying the things you think you've got, he said those very things are going to get turned and they're going to become an omen of your own destruction. He makes an elaborate use of puns. You like puns? Most dads do. That's how you get dad, all dad jokes. You puns. He, he likes, I love, I, I used to love to, to, to do fun, puns a lot in our dorm in, uh, uh, when I was in seminary. But one of my best friends, um, he just couldn't stand puns. I said, Darwin, what, why, why don't you like puns? And he, good puns. And he said, I don't ever hear a good pun. I've never heard a good pun. I don't like them. Uh, well, that's what, that here, Micah is using these elaborate puns for each of the names mentioned all the way from verse 10 to 16. Now, that last half of what I read you, there are, he's making a play on words with all these puns. Let me give you one example. Beth Orth, which means house of dust. That's its meaning in Hebrew, house of dust. Maybe built by, you know, built uh, out of, out of uh, dust and, and clay and whatever. So it was house of dust. But he calls the people to know that they are going to roll in the dust. They're going to get swept out of that, their, their habitation. They are going to get steamrolled like a tumbleweed and rolling through the desert. And he does that with all these other words, playing, basically saying, here's the judgment that is coming upon you. You think it's this? In reality, it's going to be this. The puns and literary symmetry of the chapter correspond to God's moral order for all time. It's not just back then. God is a just God, and he's a holy God, and he is always going to be just. Now, the question is, why do we not always see that? Why do we not always experience that? Well, I'm going to touch on that a little bit later. But God is just. And within that order, sin will bring punishment. Because Judah was adopted and all the evil practices of the northern kingdom is going to fall on them as well. They're going to end up in the same boat with the southern kingdom. Except, we're going to see in just a moment, there is one exception. There is one significant difference. It's been said wisely, and I can't remember where I first heard this, but someone said, in the long run, we do not break God's laws in our rebellion. They break us. When we flaunt and fly in the face of what God says is true and right and good, when we break that, when we defy that, we think we're getting away with it. But in the end, they don't, we don't break his laws. They break us. We think we're finding life on our own, but in reality, we're getting further and further from true life and more and more under judgment. You see, a lot of people think, well, 
you know, where's the, where's the sign of his coming? Where, where, where's, where's, where's God? You know, how, how can he let all this stuff go by? Well, all these terrible things that are happening. Why isn't he doing something about that? It's how interesting we, we are about. We want him to do something about it unless it's us or something that we're invested in or are concerned about. We, then we want him to be really nice to us and, and, and give us all kind of slack. But we want him to hammer other people. But why is it that we don't understand judgment will be meted out by a holy God? It's in his nature. It's in his character. It must be so. It's not a question, will judgment come? It's just when and where. When and where. Judgment will come either in time, now, here, or some years in the future, or, or a long way in the future. Judgment will either come in time, or it will come at the end of time, out of time, at the second coming. The ultimate, final judgment will be meted out. And so people say, God, God never does anything about this. He lets injustice go by. No. He sometimes lets his patience forbear and forbear. But ultimately, judgment will come. The only question is, where will it come? And on whom will it fall? Will it be on me and you or on others? Or will it be ultimately on God's Son? So judgment is not escapable. But there is a place where it can be already met and have already been carried out the sentence and that was on the cross of Christ. You see, there is a mercy sometimes, even when God is bringing judgment. And that's the last brief point. Judgment suspended. What happened? Why didn't it automatically go just like it did in the north and you see the south right behind them turn and follow suit in every way? That didn't happen. Why? How? You see, the predictions of this prophet, prophetic lament were partially fulfilled under Sennacherib, the Assyrian king, and his invasion of the multiple cities all around Jerusalem. And in 701, he got that close to getting inside Jerusalem itself. But something happened. And I'm not going to tell you that because that's going to unfold more as we go along. Something happened that averted them from totally taking over Jerusalem and taking them into exile sooner. Micah was warning the people of an impending problem that will strike them if they don't humble themselves and lament. And by and large, the prophet's warnings were over and over and over again disregarded. And judgment came. But in Micah's case, this is what's really cool about this book. In Micah's case, the message of impending judgment was heeded, at least temporarily and in some respect. And God took account of that. 
It was heeded because repentance followed. They were sinful. They were deserving of judgment, and yet they repented in sackcloth and ashes. They repented of their sinfulness and cried out for mercy. The coming disaster was postponed for a time under good king Hezekiah. And and there was repentance and there was change. Micah's ministry broke through the denial and the indifference and it suspended the judgment on Jerusalem for another century. Another hundred years. An undeserving kingdom got to remain. Ultimately, the suspension would not hold and last, but it did give that. God was being merciful because of his covenant. And when his people began to turn back to him, God relented and suspended that judgment. You see, but we must not think that this temporary suspension came easy or it was without cost. It wasn't just like, oh, oh yeah, 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 I've been, a, I've been a bad boy. Sorry. We're all good now, right? No, not, not, it was, it was costly. In verse 16, it says, make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourself a bald as an eagle for they shall go from you into exile. Micah understood the stakes, and he led the way in repentance. Micah didn't just stand there kind of like a Jonah. You remember Jonah? You know, real compassionate, merciful Jonah? You remember that guy, don't you? We, we, we studied him a, a couple of years ago. He was sitting over there and just having a pissy fit that God wasn't steamrolling the Ninevites. God was being merciful because he saw repentance and he relented. Ultimately, they too would be destroyed because they came back to their own ways. But God responded. And Jonah was like, doggone it. God, you never do what. He wasn't happy. He didn't rejoice. You see, Micah was not asking them to do something he was unwilling to do. Matter of fact, he was leading them in repentance. As I said, contrary to Jonah. You know what a cool thing? We we look into the New Testament, and you remember the disciples? Remember two of them? They were called the sons of thunder. Why do you think they were called that? Because they were wanting Jesus to get out the big stick and whip up on any and everybody that got in the way. Come on, Jesus, let's, let's tear this place down. Let's pull it down stone by stone. Oh, this is going to be cool. But you know, the old bloviating hot airbag Peter, finally the gospel had gotten into his heart and he began to understand. And he said this in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord, he's saying, why, why did God not smash him right away? The Lord is not slow 
to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. In other words, he's going to judge. He's going to bring justice. But he is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That's his heart. He's just, but he's also merciful to those who will call upon him and will turn to him and be merciful. Listen to two other passages, one from Habakkuk chapter 3, 2. We studied that together as well a number of years ago. And then Amos 5, 14 through 15. Listen to the promise here. In Habakkuk 3, 2, they too, he was awaiting judgment. He knew that God said the judgment train is on the way, Habakkuk. But this is what Habakkuk said to the Lord. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, do I fear. <laughs> Rightly so. In the midst of of the years, revive it. Revive what? Revive your covenant promises. <coughs> In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Lord, we deserve it. And if it comes, you will be just. But Lord, you're also a merciful God. Would you not, for the sake of your own glory, would you not be merciful? You see, Micah had a part of that. Habakkuk had it. Amos understood it. For he said in Amos 5, 14 and 15, Seek good and not evil, that you may live, and so the Lord God, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. Be just. And then he said, it may be then that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. In other words, he's saying, maybe God will be, remember his covenant. And despite the judgment we deserve, he will find a way to relent and to bless us. And you know what? He did because he sent us Jesus to take away the judgment from anyone who would believe in him and no longer have to fear the judgment to come for he's already passed through it and is on the side of just, righteous God who is with him. Oh, so many wonderful things, even in the time of judgment, to find such mercy from our God. Until next week, amen. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is just. And Lord, what a terrible world if there were never an accounting and never injustice always prevailed. But you told us 
in your world, that will not happen. It'll be taken care of here or there. But thank you, Father, most of all, that you sent it another place where that judgment can be meted out. Not upon us who believe in Jesus, but upon Christ who took our judgment so that we, the guilty, might go free. Oh, Father, what a wonderful, glorious gospel. What a wonderful truth to know. And may it make us gracious and repentant and willing and to call for mercy for others who do not deserve it as we did not. We who have found mercy, may you find many more in your merciful grace. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together for our...